that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by the Venerable Isaac Rayberg and the Venerable Andrew Brazier. And if you're uh, breathing and living and have a pulse in the Anglican world right now, you may be familiar that there's this thing called GAFCON. And that um, a whole bunch of Anglicans have made a statement, and maybe that's interesting to you. It's interesting to us. In fact, um, our very own miserable offender, Andrew Brazier, recently wrote something over at the North American Anglican blog. Andrew, tell us a little bit about what you wrote or why this is such an important moment yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Jesse. You know, uh, we've just wrapped up GAFCON 4. Uh, none of us were in attendance as delegates, but a lot of um, you know faithful clergy and laity were there. And you can really tell based upon the statement that came out from GAFCON 4. Um, for those listeners who may be new to Anglicanism or are not really familiar with uh, GAFCON, uh, GAFCON is, is a conference of the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, although you'll typically hear people just refer to it as GAFCON. And GAFCON is the actual conference, the gathering. This is the fourth one. And the statement they came out with, they typically come out with a statement after the conclusion of each conference, is uh, the Kigali commitment. And so instead of it being a statement, uh, it's a statement that is a commitment that really delineates uh, the difference between uh, the vast majority of the Anglican Communion, the Orthodox uh, part of that body, and those who have walked away, and uh, walked away from uh, the scriptures and the tradition uh, of the church. And this commitment has done an outstanding job of being a powerful statement of really walking through uh, why uh, those who are Orthodox Anglicans simply cannot take up the invitation by other parts of the communion to walk together in disagreement when the disagreement is so fundamental uh, on many different points, not just simply sexuality, but as the Jerusalem Statement uh, written uh, over 10 years ago now uh, says, also on issues of the divinity of Christ and the authority of the scriptures. So uh, I wrote a little piece there for a North American Anglican that, that tries to bring this commitment, brings a statement back home to what does it look like for us you know, with our families, uh, for laity, and for clergy alike ministering in the parish. Excellent. Um, uh, Canon Isaac, what do you think? Yeah, this this is a pretty exciting thing. Um, the the big The big news item is that um, these primates, and many of whom are in the uh, the official Anglican Communion, have have basically said that the instruments of communion are. Um, at this point, completely worthless, and uh, we need to do something else. <laughs> and so th- this this is a this is a basically sounding that there is an official break 
that is happening. Um, what that looks like is not completely clear yet, um, but but that that is um, it's big news. Um, now for our listeners who are in the ACNA, um, you've been in that situation a long time already. Our listeners who've been in the communion even longer, or the uh, continuum rather, you've been in there a longer. But um, this is a big deal for for those, especially in the global south provinces that that have been in the communion and trying to make it work. Um, uh, Venerable uh, Andrew and I were were both um, kind of had some dual citizenship between the ACNA and Nigeria for a long time. My own diocese was only in Nigeria for a while um, before it came back to solely ACNA. Um, you know, so we, we, ha we had some, for, for a lot of people in my own diocese, part of the reason why there was this attachment to Nigeria was that official connection to the communion. Um, I haven't really heard from some of those guys <laughs> yet, but as far as, you know, my thoughts and, and the people that I minister to in, in our local archdeaconry, our local parishes, um, we're kind of looking at this. It's kind of about time. You know, it's about time something happened, and we're 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 glad that that it did. Right. Yeah. I was thinking. Um, you mentioned if you've been in the ACNA, then this has been a long time coming. And that's certainly, you know, whenever I hear something taking place at the GAFCON level, at the FCA level, I'm always wondering, you know, well, what has changed at this point? And it, it does seem like if you've been paying attention for the last 10 or more years, the Anglican communion, um, even a breakup takes a long time to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there are Lambeth gatherings, there are um, disinclined invitations to appear at Lambeth gatherings. There are, uh, GAFCON gatherings and, um, which I believe Welby showed up to one of those. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there are, so, it, but, but all of this kind of, um, it's like if you've been paying attention for a while and you have a Orthodox theological perspective, you might be thinking, come on guys, what's the holdup? I thought we did this 10 years ago <laughs> or, or what's changed, you know? Um, but it does seem like with these, you know, large institutions with a lot of moving parts, um, there are rules and there are ways of doing things. And, and some things just need to kind of uh, be hammered out on their own time. Is that sort of the uh, feeling that you guys get? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Jesse. And I have to give credit to uh, those who are part of the Global South uh, Fellowship and part of uh, GAFCON, the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. The, they've definitely walked through everything they can by trying to engage change from within. And I've heard those who support GAFCON, those who are delegates, use a mixture of terminology that this isn't a schism versus like we are separating from the Anglican Communion. And I would say based upon, you know, for me, you know, looking at it from a legal background, I would say it's really the vast majority of the Anglican Communion saying, look, the structures we have in place aren't actually providing ecclesial discipline, which I note in the article is one of the three marks of the church, according to our Anglican reformers, 
and the other reformers as well on the continent, uh, as we articulate in our books of uh, homilies, is there's got to be discipline. It's very clear in Scripture that discipline is part of the church. So if there's not discipline for error, for errant theology, for um, more than just mild disagreement, but serious disagreement on what the Scriptures say, what the tradition has upheld, then we need to do better. We need to form such structures so that we can have ecclesial discipline. And that's something that you hear quite clear in the Kigali commitment from GAFCON is that there needs to be structure. And so the vast majority of the communion is not saying we're taking our ball and going home, but we're going to engage in the hard work of creating such a structure. And it sounds like based upon the Kigali commitment and the fact that Global South came, attended, and participated uh, in parts of GAFCON, that probably the Global South uh, Fellowship of Anglicans will create such a structure. They've already got an outline called a covenant that's on their website that anyone can look at. And it's really the focusing around and surrounding oneself around the formularies, which interesting enough, a little side note, the Global South on that covenant also notes the Book of Homilies as, as part of the formularies, uh, to come around and, uh, and gather together under not simply you know professing with our lips that we follow Christ, but also having teeth to it so that when someone errs or departs, then we can hold each other accountable and, uh, and have such ecclesial discipline that's sorely lacking in the Anglican communion. Interesting. And that's really been a problem. Yeah, yeah, that's really been a problem with the Anglican communion for a, a good hundred years or so. <laughs> um, that when when the communion formed, um, rather than having, like my understanding is there there was a movement to make it similar to how the Eastern Orthodox churches are um, very conciliar, but but there is this um, holding each other accountable aspect, and instead that didn't fly when the communion was formed, and it became the communion ended up being more of a a federation of um, a loosely connected federation, or sometimes more, you know, that's really connected by that connection to Canterbury, Primates meeting, Lambeth conference, et cetera. And so it hasn't had the discipline, the disciplinary teeth that it needs to. Um, and, and that has been a problem for about 100 years when controversies like um, divorce, contraception, um, women's ordination came up, there was there was never any teeth. And um, yeah. I, I recently revisited the 2008 Jerusalem Declaration um, as part of a class I'm teaching at, at our church right now. And I realized that's something that the, the FCA GAFCON has realized kind of looking back. Yeah, we've, we, we, we should have done better for a long time. This, this whole situation really, to me, reminds me quite a bit of the Reformation era split or division. Um, you know, you've got, frankly, the, the reformers, um, you know, the earliest reformers were interested in a council and uh, actually having their, uh, you know, points being taken seriously and debated. And by the time a council came around with teeth, as it were, none of the um, opposing sides of the Roman magisterium were invited. <laughs> so right. it wasn't much of a council. <laughs> um, and we kind of have maybe a, a very different kind of split, you could say, um, 
Whereas the the more modern tendency is just to kick the ball down the street as far as you can for long as you can, you know, and avoid conflict and even encourage people to fellowship together in spite of uh, sharply divided theological commitments, at which point communion becomes just sort of an empty word. But I wonder, you know, how how similar and how different are is this situation from, say, the Reformation in, in either of your minds? That's a real interesting question, Jesse. You know, like I've heard from day one, I think we all have from uh, the very first GAFCON meeting that this was like a new, you know, Reformation reforming uh, movement. Uh, those who are more uh, Reformation leaning within Anglicanism have really uh, taken hold of uh, the old saying, you know, always uh, reforming. Um, and I think that it's accurate to a large extent. Um, and you made a good point, Jesse, you know, really kind of fleshing out how is this similar between the, the original Reformation and what we're experiencing now. And it's very much the Anglican uh, communion, uh, the Orthodox, which is the vast majority, are saying, like, we're not leaving the Anglican communion. We're doing everything we can to preserve it, to be faithful to, above all else, all, above all else the scriptures, you know, the formularies and really being uh, Christians following after the, the way of Christ and not giving into the temptation of, of reinterpreting uh, the teachings of Christ or ignoring them, quite frankly, to better suit the ways of the world. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting similarities between the two. I wouldn't just say that like, it is the new reformation, but it's certainly a great reform movement, like so many you know, reforming movements, as you all know, that even predate the Reformation, uh, that when you have the, the Roman Catholic Church before, it's, it's just Roman, it's the Catholic Church, um, and even before uh, there's an Eastern and Western Church, there's so many different reforming movements from great saints of old um, that really helped bring the church you know, in, in better clarity and faithfulness uh, to the scriptures. And I think we're definitely in a moment like that. Well, what do you think, Isaac? Yeah, uh, one of one of the things that happens at, at my church all the time, um, it hasn't re in the last year or two, but it definitely when I was first director there, that was happening all the time. Folks would ask me, um, who were kind of waffling between kind of a high church Anglican and Roman Catholicism, would would ask me, okay, what what what's the difference? And my my standard response very quickly became, it's one of authority. Um, you know, for, for us, the, the, the buck stops with the scriptures and because the buck stops with the scriptures, there's going to be major differences and there's going to be some theological issues. Um, that is not the case with, with the Roman Catholic church. And when we look at some of what was happening, particularly in the English reformation, as it kind of settles down, the articles are forming and that sort of thing, authority very much is a big, is a very big issue. Is, is scripture the final authority? And so, you know, we have that phrase in the articles, you know, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction <laughs> in this realm. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I've, I've read um, some uh, transcripts of some speeches that uh, like, like King James, the, the first and sixth, um, you know, he even said, okay, you know, we, we understand that Rome was historically the Western patriarch and we would love for him to be in that role again if he would just be biblical. And this is very much the same kind of thing that's happening. You know, the 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 chair of Canterbury is historically where, you know, our, our, our mother, in a sense, as Anglicans. But 
if the chair of Canterbury and the and, and the Mother Church of England is going to be um, departing from what is clear in the Bible on, on, on these very essential issues, you know, particularly in this case, the presenting issue being homosexuality, um, that's a problem. And, 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 and it's not just about sexuality. It's really about, can we trust the word of God? Is the word of God our final authority? Or are we going to bow to something else? Yeah. I, I keep thinking that these similarities are important because in a way both of these historic moments in the history of the church have this parallel where you have a centralized authority which is becoming in the minds and consciences of christians across the globe bankrupt, um, you know, incapable of holding theological and moral order within the church. And, and so what do you do when you have that situation? It, it's kind of two questions. What do you do when you have a global church, which, you know, hasn't always been the case? And also, what do you do when the people in charge who are supposed to be the sheriffs, as it were, are not being sheriffed, you know, (laughs) they're not not doing their job. Like you had one job, the meme, as the meme goes, you know, and uh, and in fact, they have seemed to be some of the worst offenders. And, And I think that this is, you know, another parallel. Now, I'm not. The thing that concerns me a little bit is I'm not confident that the Reformation ever really fleshed out a a truly lasting ecclesial vision, Um, you know, uh, and maybe national churches with sort of um, some kind of loose global affiliation is just the best that we can ever hope for this side of heaven. I mean, what do you guys think of that? I think there's the, the other perspective, I guess you could say is the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox perspective, which is actually we have pure and unbroken uh, succession and communion with all of our different churches across the globe, but on the ground, you've got, you know, bishops in Germany who are ordained or gay marrying people. And, you know, it's, there's basically, um, a lot more chaos and, uh, diversity beneath the surface, but they have a theory that pretends at this perfect unity. What, what should, what kind of expectations should Orthodox Anglicans have when it comes to an Anglican communion? What what will an Anglican communion even mean in the coming years? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm no prophet on this, but you know what, what I tell our local flock and and kind of the I mean, really the gist of, of my article is not examining the statement, but really trying to say what do we do practically speaking? You know, I, I get really tied up. And I am preaching to myself and really writing to myself in that column of it's easy for me to get tied into the big international meetings. 
the big things that are going on, these great big statements, which are important. But now, how do I practically work them out and minister to the local flock, minister to my own family and to my neighbors? And I think that the key is, is to remember that while there is, you know, craziness happening, not just in the Anglican communion, but throughout so many different communions, including Rome and even in the East. And in, of course, the other Protestant denominations, you see the Methodist Church undergoing its own realignment of sorts with the global Methodists uh, emerging. But I see locally so many UMC churches going to even smaller uh, American uh, churches, like the Free Methodist, for example. So what is a faithful Christian to do? Well, to cling to our scriptures, to be quite uh, fundamentalist about it, you know, to go back and to know the word of God. Uh, I made a point in one of our men's fellowship gatherings that it's so ironic, and I am just as guilty of this as every other center, that we have so much access to, you know, all the resources, all the books in the world. Jesse, you were talking about earlier before we hit the record button about, you know, looking through archive.org, you know, and just getting lost in it. And yet, what do I really do? Well, I do that to a certain extent. I'm laughing at memes on the internet instead of using this glorious resource <laughs> of this, this library of Alexandria that we have to even simply just read one book, to read the scriptures <laughs> and to yes. learn it and to know it well. And um, and that's the great temptation we have is instead of having like the first Reformation, a lack of access to the scriptures in our own language. Now we have an overabundance. But, you know, the old screw tape, you know, who's plaguing all of us is like, well, just flood them with information and with distractions and temptations. So I think the call for us is to know our scriptures and to be known by the word of God, to use the tools that are given to us as Anglicans, like the formularies, to guide our thinking, guide our understanding, guide ourselves in that ancient early church tradition of what the church has always believed, and to be faithful in the context that we're at, because that's the only thing we can control. That's the only thing that we can really uh, impact and affect. So it's not hopeless. It's just that if we put our hopes in something else or someone else, somewhere else, then we're really being distracted with the ministry that Christ has put us in right here in our own backyards. What do you think, Venerable uh, uh, Isaac? Yeah, um, yeah, we, we kind, kind of a, a theme in, in our own local talks um, among, you know, we, we have a, a local archdeaconry that works really closely together. Um, but one, one of the things that's always a theme in our talks is all ministry is local. And, um, that drop, that's going to be the first tier of everything that we're going to be working on is, was, what is this going to do locally? And that doesn't mean that these international things or these national things aren't important. They are, I mean, you know, the, the we're not congregationalists, but, um, where the rubber meets the road is local. And so what, what, what can, what can I as a rector control? Well, I can, um, as, as, as uh, Venerable Andrew said, I can, uh, I, I can be in the scriptures, teach my people to be in the scriptures, equip them to, to be in the word of God, educate them from our formularies and our divines and from the church fathers, um, build a community that's, 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 identified by the rule of faith in our book of common prayer, you know, things like that, um, build the relationships within the local Anglican world here, um, whether they're in our archdeaconry, whether, whether they're within our diocese or not, or even with their, whether they're within our jurisdiction or not, um, you know, build, build these things as 
as true unity on the ground. Um, you know, th there's been a lot of chatter, um, both both at the North American Anglican, but but everywhere I've noticed about kind of reclaiming a theological center for 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 our tradition, and and we just haven't been good at that again for about a hundred years. Um, it it it's, you know we're we're having to clean up a mess that our our spiritual forefathers have have really set up for us, and that in many times we've we've made worse. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know what? What's what's the best way to do that? Well, it's it's odd it's odd fontes, right? And, and at the same time, we have to realize where those lines in the sands are for us. You know, my, my the the class I'm teaching at our parish is riffing off of Al Mohler's 2005 essay um, calling for theological triage. So we need to look at some of these controversies in terms of not that any of them are unimportant, but which of these are the most important so that we can make sure we are lined up with the word of God, that we are not straying from um, our own Anglican tradition, and that we can, with, 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 with proper voice, call for repentance and call for reformation where it's needed. It seems to me, just listening to you two gentlemen discuss these issues, which are very much present in um, the local Kigali statement, as well as um, uh, in Andrew's uh, recent piece at North American Anglican, we have these two sort of points of tension or, or lines of tension, if you will, between global concerns and local concerns, and then another sort of cross tension between the ecumenical vocation of the Christian church and the creedal, confessional, scriptural vocation, if you will. And it's, none of these is really a non-essential part of what Christians do or think about or believe, but they can very easily, very easily, as as this article points out, and as you guys have been saying, the global concerns can infiltrate local concerns and cause us to fail in the local uh, realm to do those sorts of things that are so necessary, teaching the scriptures, teaching the, the word of God and our formularies and catechizing the faithful which, of course, has a global effect, um, where would we be if, at the global level, these individual faithful provinces hadn't been catechizing and steeped in the scriptures and remaining faithful in the local level, right? And so all these things have their place in this sort of economy of the church and the Christian life, and it's very easy to sort of let a perfectly good and important thing shift into a place in your life or in your consideration that it doesn't belong and suddenly it becomes inappropriate. And the most easy things for me to excuse in myself are appropriate things that I've made inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I've found my, my in my own uh, recent life, I, I want to listen to podcasts about these things more than I want to pray my daily office. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's where I'm guilty of. Yeah. 
And that's where, like, I was preaching to myself, like, right in that column, because I like what you said just now, uh, Archdeacon Isaac, of, you know, we, we've inherited a problem that our forefathers have given us for over the past hundred years. And I think I'm scared that, um, I really am, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that even within Orthodox Anglicanism, that everybody wants to just move a clock back to circa 2000 or 1980 or 1950. And I'm like, the problems and the the seeds were planted so long ago, we've got to go pull out some weeds from the roots. And I like what you pointed out. We need to go back a hundred years, not to let's return to Victorian style, you know, et cetera. No, I'm talking about return to the theology of our fathers. Let's go back to the ancient landmarks that are not to be moved. And at least we see with GAFCON, they're, saying let's go back to the scriptures let's use the formularies as our guideposts and archbishop foley i noted in the column you know even had a statement that even back home in our own provinces we have things we need to repent from we still have weeds we've got to pull out we're not saying that we're perfect but we're working towards orienting ourselves and reorienting ourselves and reforming ourselves even back at home and that's what we see no matter if you're in acna if you're in a continuing body, if you're still fighting the good fight in the Episcopal Church, I want to try to hopefully provoke uh, those laity and clergy alike on, let's try to focus each day on what we can control and what our commitment is to word and sacrament ministry and trying to live that life you know, as best we can and really living it through the prayer book rule of life as Anglicans, you know, for other Christians who are reading or listening to this, you know, you know, where your tradition points you back to the ancient truth, the ancient faith, the ancient way of Christ through the scriptures, that's the, the context that you need to be working in and working towards. Because we're seeing that the battle lines that are being drawn are not just simply within Anglicanism, but the battle lines for Orthodox Christianity bleeds through to Methodism, to Roman Catholic, Catholicism, you know, and well beyond that. So I hope that it's used as some encouragement for those who are fighting the good fight, like so many who may be isolated and feel very isolated in the parish that they're at because they're hearing rank heresy, but they don't have anywhere else they feel like they can turn to. Or for clergy who feel like my bishops are against me, uh, they're not preaching you know, the truth, they're not overseeing as they're called to do um, in First Timothy and Titus and beyond. What am I to do? You continue to fight the good fight and deliver that word in that pulpit, serve those sacraments, and teach the way, the truth, and the life that comes only from Jesus Christ. Yeah, I I think a, a lot of this sort of breaks down to what's your vocation, you know, and, and there's, you know, that, that sort of very basic, basically true, you know, basic in the best way, not, oh, this is limited, oh, this is unimportant but those that basic fundamental biblical prayer book orthodox anglican way of life is a perennial reality that we can all do to be reordering our lives according to um and then you know uh, some of these other things as people are gifted to say write articles for the North American Anglican or um, (laughs) make podcasts about the catechism and, you know, all sorts of other important contributions, then um, of course those are welcomed in their, you know, proper place. I I wanted to 
even, you know, even going back to this idea of a hundred years of sort of, hey, let's take stock. And, and I wonder, is this just what the church does? I mean, like you were saying, Andrew, there's been moments of reform throughout the entire history of Christendom. And gosh, it seems like when you're, when you've got a good time, what's the, the saying? It's like good times create soft men, soft men create bad times, bad times create tough men, tough men create good times or something like when, when the church and Christian society is enjoying good times, it just seems like it's easy to coast and to say, hey, we're not being burned at the stake. <laughs> you know, we're not, this, <laughs> this is not bad. Let's, you know, and, and to maybe lose your edge a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this is just something that happens where, um, you know, the gospel is going forth and good things are happening and people are just forgetful. I mean, what, what does Luther say? I preach the gospel every week because every week the people forget. Yeah. Um, and I think that the forgetfulness of even the renewed Christian mind and soul is something that we have to keep before us. And not to say, oh, we're the generation that's going to break the cycle. But, you know, uh, we have our own our own spiritual fight to to engage in and ours is the present one. And part of that I hope is to say, Hey, let's take stock of the last hundred years. Let's ask ourselves in what ways we've allowed worldly ideas about, um, marriage, humanity, sexuality, politics, economics, all these things to sort of shape the Christian, value system from the outside in unhealthy ways. And I'm willing to guess that, again, in Ad Fontes sort of looking back to certain perennial principles uh, is going to be a good way to help us clean up shop. I think you make a good point there, Jesse, of, of looking back, you know, in an age, you know, while we were talking, I was thinking about 100 years ago, that's like 1923, which is wild to me. Like, being an 80s kid, I was thinking like 1800s. It's like, no, right. <laughs> it's actually more than 100 years ago. But uh, but to get back to your point, Jesse, you know, it really should be a question that we all should have on in the so-called age of progress. Why has the church so deformed so badly and been in so need of reform? That should give us pause and question, are we putting one foot in the world and one foot in the other world instead of being completely faithful to our Lord? And then a self-examining of what does that look like? And it's a, a gut check that I've had to do throughout my own life and change my mind, re- repent from what I once thought because I realized I'm really being influenced and being led by the ways of the world and ignoring uncomfortable parts of scripture that I just don't want to agree with. Well, if it's the word of God, it's the word of God. Yeah. And as you made the great point, Archdeacon Isaac, you know, like the authority, the buck stops there. And I need to submit myself, my own way of thinking as a person. But more importantly, how do we as the body of Christ, as the church, how do we do that and live that out? And if there's areas in which we need to reform, then we need to repent and reform, like what we're seeing through 
uh, the GAFCON movement in the global south. And that should be quite encouraging for so many in Western nations who are isolated and alone and are not part of a, a hub, a local parish, or even a, a province that is preaching orthodoxy. So I would look to this uh, Kigali commitment and and really say praise God and see that like I'm not alone. There are other believers. There are, you know, as the Lord told uh, Elijah, you know, so many thousands who have not bent the knee to bow. And, uh, and that is such the case uh, now, including the vast majority of the Anglican Union, even though we may not see it where we are planted. But as you pointed out, Jesse, that's our vocation. Where we're planted is where we're called to be faithful. No promise of growth, but called to be faithful and keep planting and scattering seeds. And and these things to do it well does take time. Um, you know, look looking at you know back to two thousand eight. You know, the Jerusalem Declaration was amazing. Um, it, it 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 is definitive for for a lot of us in North American Anglicanism and kind of global Anglicanism today or Orthodox Anglicanism. But um, there's some things it wasn't ready to deal with. You know, we weren't ready to deal with. 13 years ago, um, 50, whatever it is, I can't do my math. Um, you know, this, this the Kigali commitment is the next step. It's a really good step. Um, things needed to get done, but it doesn't solve everything. You know, there are still some, some things where, where we're, we need to still do heavy work. Um, and, and by the, by God's grace, we will. Regardless yeah, of what, I, what happens. I was thinking about that 10 years ago and in the minds of many of us, I think, and some more than others, because uh, the Church of England of under Archbishop Roman William, Rowan Williams was in a notably different state of affairs. I mean, you could say that a lot of what's bad about it now were was bubbling up and at work, but I think a lot of us sort of thought we're dealing with a, a an Anglican communion where the chief head province is more or less orthodox, but failing to police these um, other provinces which seemed dead set on apostasy, um, the Episcopal Church and Canadians and others. And it seems like, you know, 10 years has taken its toll on an attitude of, you know, you could even say like a Victorian attitude towards conflict and a sort of, you know, apathy towards orthodoxy in the Church of England. And we just you know, the, the head of the fish has rotten, rotted quite a bit since then. Um, but also, as you said, Father Isaac, these things do take time. But it, it does seem that, you know, as time progresses, sometimes the real nature of a thing or the real problems that are beset within a thing eventually just manifest themselves and the denials become unnecessary and uh you know <laughs> easier to uh call out but and, and that's a big part of what happened at kigali was um going to this last lambeth conference a lot of the the primates 
and bishops from you know within the Orthodox Anglican world that, that were there got a wake up call about how 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 things really have gotten to a point where there's probably not any turning some of this around. And so what happens at Kigali, what happened at Kigali was these folks said, okay, the line's back there. Now we need to do something about it. Right. If our listeners are not aware, the Church of England has recently decided that it is willing, although it is not willing to officially wed um, same-sex unions, they're willing to bless them. (laughs) And it's even more squirrely than that. They're willing to bless people in same-sex relationships. (laughs) So they're not not blessing the civil unions, they're blessing the people because they're like, we're going to try to appease both conservatives and liberals here. And and nobody, Uh nobody was happy with them. (laughs) It was like the worst thing they could do. Be hot or cold, you know, don't, don't, don't try to be warm. Which is, I mean, I guess in a way it's a good thing because then ultimately the the far revisionist, frankly anti-Christian, anti-scripture people contingent will abandon the church as well because it's not doing enough, you know. And and what probably needs to happen to shake some of the lingering souls who have a decent biblical worldview loose of their associations is just to see that this thing is no longer tenable. And, you know, that I guess the real concern, you know, probably in a lot of people's minds is, well, what replaces all this? And I suppose the, you know, having Orthodox jurisdictions in the global South is great having an ACNA parish in your local town, if you can find one, is great. Um, but it it does seem that there's this, just a scary element of, are we going to be able to, you know, come up with counter structures or, you know, sort of pick up the slack for the normal faithful person on the ground who just needs a biblical church to attend. Um, And maybe that gets to some of your, part of your point, Canon Andrew, about, you know, if you're on the ground and worried about this thing, at the very least, we can sort of take comfort or be encouraged that someone somewhere is taking a stand. And even if you feel isolated, you're not alone. Is that sort of the the kind of comforting message we're able to offer here? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. You know, it's one part, you know, the, the comfort is, is that you're not alone, that there are many more Orthodox believers out there. But then it's also the reality, uh, like I say in the column, of like now the time is, is to get to work and, uh, and not to be burdened by it, but to realize as you wisely pointed out, Jesse, our vocation, you know, going back to first, you know, starting with who are we? You know, we are gods and not our own. You know, we belong to him. And then where am I, you know, in the context of my family, even if you're not married, even if you're you're single, you know, even your mom and dad, you no longer live with, you know, like in that context of here's my family, you know, how, how do I love, minister and care for them as a believer in Christ? 
Uh, and especially for those of us who have families, you know, with young children and grown children, because I don't know how that feels yet, but they're still your children. They always are. And, and praying for the grandchildren and trying to be a presence in, the, in their lives. And then to our, our neighbors, which includes our, our local parish community. That's the hard work that we have. And if you're like, I don't have that parish community, you know, it, praying and trying to discern, like, am I called to find others like me, you know, to to plant? Or am I kind of an, an isolated, I'm in a, in a parish context, but there's not many of us who do think the scriptures are, you know, fully the word of God. Well, do what you can to minister to those, to keep planting that seed and be a witness because the word of the Lord is not going to return empty handed. There's no guarantee of you're going to have new disciples, but you may be the light that Christ has placed there in order to, to let his spirit, you know, burn out bright within you and catch others on fire. Lord willing, that's what that's what I pray for. Uh, the kind of revival I'd love to see is not like one in Ashbury um, University, not to knock it, but is one in which just we as Christians in our daily lives and our daily vocations are faithful to that vocation. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it's most difficult is to wake up each Monday morning and start the day by, you know, hitting your knees on the ground and confessing your sins and giving the day back to God. I'm the world's worst on it, but I'm convicted that that's my call. I've got to start right. And then I can finish strong. But if I don't start right, then it's always I'm trying to get back on the path that I've, I've walked away from, you know. And it's a lot more difficult when you're in the briars and the brambles of the world trying to get back to the path that you lost your way on. But thanks be to God, we just celebrated Good Shepherd Sunday. That Good Shepherd is always coming after us. And he's using his shepherd's crook. And it kind of hurts sometimes when he yanks us back. But we need it as, as part of that flock that keeps wandering. And there's a there's there is a, a a legitimate thought experiment that gets thrown around on Facebook and Twitter all the time, which says, okay, if um, you could not, for whatever reason, as as an Orthodox Anglican, uh, worship in a, in a in a parish, maybe there just isn't one. What do you do? Where do you go? And and this is where where engaging in a certain amount of theological triage is important. Um, right. You know, I. You know, if if I were not ordained, if I were a layman who was convicted that this is where I ought to be, and all there was was a heretical Episcopal church nearby, I couldn't do that. I don't care, you know, how Anglican they might be in their use of the Book of Common Prayer, um, because you have to discern what are those the, those those issues that really separate the true Christian faith from heresy and from false religion. Um, and and then there's going to be some lines in the sand where like, okay, I recognize this is my brother Christian, but I just can't go there on this issue. And then there's going to be some things where you say, okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree, even if this is an important issue. And being able to really discern that is important because if everything is a, well, this separates Christianity from, from false religion, if every single issue is that, you're going to end up all by yourself you're, you know, that that's 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 the mark of fundamentalism, really. You know, you're going to be all by yourself and um, you'll end up you know, end up as a congregation of one or it's just, you know, and, and that's a very unhealthy thing. That is not a Christian position. Uh, at the same time, if everything is negotiable, you will be led astray by by the world and by these forces that the, these demonic forces, frankly, that want to destroy the faith. 
So, so you, you, you gotta, you gotta be able to figure these things out. Um, even if there's not, even if you're a good Orthodox Anglican and there's, there's no options for you that are perfect, there may be some that are, are worthwhile. Certainly. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, I can speak to with my own family experience, having had a parish close up underneath us and then attempting the church planning route without much success, um, myself not being ordained and uh, taking refuge in, you know, various other ecclesial uh, situations. And of course, once you have a family, you're thinking about catechesis, both mm -hmm. the formal kind, but also sort of uh, what are the informal expectations of church life and worship that you're teaching your kids just by introducing them to different sort of forms of worship that may not be that ideal, as you said. So it's it's tricky, certainly. Um, you know, and anyone who finds himself in that situation, I would say, first, feel free to reach out for prayer. If there's nothing we can do as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can pray for one another and sort of, you know, make real those uh, ligaments between the different members of the body. Um, and beyond that, um, you know, there there do seem to be some church planning initiatives and, uh, you know, hopefully some of that institutional support that maybe institutions have been poo-pooed in the last hundred years or so. But, um, gosh, when you don't have them at your disposal, you suddenly realize their value. So hopefully some of that is coming your way. And there's, you know, places you can look, whether on the ACNA website. I think we just lost uh, Jesse. I think we did. I just said the, the web page there for, for the listeners. Sure. You know, looking for certain solutions. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, just knowing that other people are out there and willing to pray for you is uh, is also good. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any final? Well. Yeah, go ahead. I was thinking, you know, a couple of final thoughts from you yeah. guys, and maybe we should put a bow on this one. Yeah, I'll just say one thing, like, Jesse, I think you make a great point. You've had to, to personally live through this as well. And I can imagine that someone may be listening to this thinking, like, I'm not a church planner. That's not my calling, you know. And that's really, you know, you know, you, you know, like, that's not really my calling, my vocation. I think that both um, Archdeacon Isaac and you have given good suggestions. And I would like to encourage our clergy because I found something on, um, on the ACNA website that uh, there's a parish out in Colorado, or maybe it's being formed, and they're looking for a for circuit riders, you know, going with a Methodist model. And I thought, man, that is mm. great. That is brilliant. And I actually brought it up to our vestry because we met yesterday. And I was like, we need to be seeking out and finding, are there people in our tri-county area who would like to have an Anglican service, but there's just not a presence because the rural areas are so easily overlooked. And can we, you know, help out, you know, even if it's just like once every three Sundays, but just to help and be a presence. So I encourage my fellow clergymen to look at this as a great opportunity to raise up lay readers 
who can do the, the morning office, who could do anti-communion. And that way, it's not just on you like, oh, man, something else that I got to do because I get it. You know, I'm tri-vocational and I don't necessarily have the time. I may be neglecting my own flock, but to raise up lay leaders, you know, Lord willing, raise up deacons, you know, coming into the church, you know, who are ready to be ordained and then being able to send them out. And then at least once a month, you go on a rotation to bring the sacrament in order to minister to people who are truly isolated like there's not even like an episcopal church much less than a, a conservative one for me to attend and i've tried the other local churches you know i'm down in the deep south so typically there'll be a baptist church you know and i'm not really comfortable with that so what do i do well i would encourage the listener who's a lay member reach out to the closest Anglican uh, parish and throw this idea and blame me for it. (laughs) And then for for the Anglican parish who's listening to this, like mull over this, chew over it. Think about where is, you know, my farthest member, you know, my members, where are they commuting from? Ask them, do y'all know anybody back, back, you know, at home, 20, 30 miles away, even further for some people who are commuting to a parish? Would be interesting in some sort of fellowship, you know. You could even set it up to where it meets in the evening. So if you're an ambitious clergyman, you could say, you know what, we'll do our morning service, and then once every few, you know, weeks, I'll come Sunday evening, and we'll do evening prayer. Or I'll bring the sacrament, you know, and we'll we'll do Holy Communion. But I think we just need to get creative, and uh, sometimes pulling a, a page out of, uh, you know, the the Methodists who at one time were the, the largest. Christian denomination um, in the United States is something that's familiar with Anglicans since they're our cousins and also is a a creative way of really trying to think, um, you know, in a context of of how can we reach more people, help plant seeds, not only of being lifeboats for isolated Anglicans and Episcopalians, but also so those seeds will grow and Lord willing will reach out to people who don't know who Jesus Christ is and will bring them in to the church. So that's my closing thought there. Yeah, kind kind of in a similar vein. Um just to, just to give give a bit of encouragement, you know, our, our parish was one of those that left the Episcopal Church 45 years ago and um in this part of Texas there were so few of us. Um, I I say us as I was even born then, but <laughs> but um <laughs> our parish and several others in this part of Texas were in that same situation where where there was no permanent rector for any of them. And um, Bishop Beckwith uh, ended up being the circuit writer, who my understanding is he every Sunday he was he was hitting five different churches in this big chunk of Texas. Um, the Sundays when he couldn't be there, they raised up. Usually one of the wardens functioned as the parish clerk to 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 read a read a homily or um, and lead lead the offices. Um, and, and many of these churches are still here uh-huh. 45 years later, they've, they've, they're, they're able to support, um, their own rector. Um, and, you know, in, in our part of Texas, in our diocese, that's the way we've decided to do church planting. You know, we, we will, we rotate for those new plants and, and it's, and it's, it's not ideal, but it's a uh-huh. great way to start. That's awesome. And God bless that good bishop for, for really doing the work of a bishop there and being a circuit rider himself. That's encouraging. That's great. Now, now remind me, uh, venerable sirs, which which town in particular are each of you hailing from right now? 
So I'm over in uh, the Pelham, Alabama area, which is in suburbia of South uh, Birmingham. So Helena, Alabaster, Pelham, Hoover, that's kind of the area that I'm located at. Okay. Is that a roll tide situation over there? Is that... <laughs> you know, p- people, you know, p- will draw guns on if it's war eagle roll tide. I'm a go blazers. I'm a, a rare bird as a UAB fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of, one of our uh, often rivals uh, in the football world. Uh, it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Um, and uh, so our, our area between us and Austin is looking to become a, a, a major metroplex in the next several years. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing some of our, our latest plant has been kind of in those mid cities um, between San Antonio and Austin. Um, and we, we've got, we've got more than our share of good Anglican churches in San Antonio. Um, I don't, I don't know why that is. It's, it's kind of a weird history of the, of the, continuum and early days of ACNA, but uh, yeah, that, mm. that's where we're at. It's great. And I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, which uh, has a, a fair amount of Episcopal churches, none of which I feel safe bringing my family to. Um, a, a handful of formerly Anglican, now Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic churches. And uh, that's about it. But hey, I was thinking, you know, between the Midwest, the Texas, the, the Deep South, um, we could make this circuit rider thing like a real horseback thing if we wanted. I mean, culturally, it seems pretty, pretty native to uh, our, our, you know, maybe we should start up um, a Pony Express for, for, <laughs> for clerical callers or something. I, I don't know. I, I like it. You know, I got my with that ready, so. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be our uniquely uh, American contribution to global Orthodox Anglicanism. You know, if uh, we ever have a GAFCON conference over here in the States, we'll have to show up on a horse, so. <laughs> yes, I really hope there will be, uh, you know, vested clergymen who show up with uh, cowboy hats and stuff, so. <laughs> Almost all of us in uh, this part of Texas have one somewhere. <laughs> awesome. Love it. We, we, we Love get it. our Berettas from J.B. Stetson. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Uh, don't look for that in the catalog, folks. That's a, that's a hidden <laughs> item. This... <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, it's been good to get back together. Yes. Uh, let's keep the band together. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for joining us. And uh, we uh, hope that you'll hear from us soon. Take care. God bless. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.